Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, that was a freebie. You have to push again now. Gleno. Gleno, what do I do here? Do I push my luck, Gleno? Gleno says, no no, I mean, don't do it. <laughs> uh, all right, we take it back. We take it back. Gleno meant to say don't do it. <laughs> Welcome to Which Game First, where we explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we find any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we gather our band of merry misfits to liberate the Lord of Loxley in Rescuing Robin Hood. Next up, we weave a web of spies and diplomats to navigate shifting sands and shifting alliances across Afghanistan and claim our fortune in Pax Pamir. And lastly, we perilously race to the top of the empire to the to the to a grass hut in King Kong. <laughs> I'm your host, Celeste Angelus, here with my decades-long gaming buddies, Evan Bernstein. Hello. Ed Povolitis. Hey, what's up? And Mike Grenier. Uh, buongiorno. <laughs> Our first game up this week is Rescuing Robin Hood, designed by Bryce Brown, published by Castillo Games in 2021, Number of players, 1 to 5, ages 10 and up. Playtime, 20 minutes per player. Okay, Mike, tell us, what's in the box? On the cover of the box, you find some of Robin Hood's merry men and some members of his B-team, smiling and ready for battle. But where's Robin, you ask? Luckily, there's a sign with an arrow conveniently pointing in the direction that they must travel to rescue him. Oh, good. Yeah, that's nice. It's very convenient. Inside the box, you'll discover 80 villager cards, 8 band leader cards, 88 sheriff's guard cards, a Nottingham castle card, 5 attribute trackers, and 48 attribute cubes. And that's what's in the box. Before we tell you if this game hits a bullseye, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Rescuing Robin Hood, players are leaders of Robin Hood's merry band. Our fearless leader Robin Hood has been captured by the Sheriff of Nottingham. We must rescue Robin Hood in only five days, lest Robin of Loxley meets his fate. In this cooperative game, players work together, amplifying their characters' strengths, such as wit, brawn, and stealth. Each day, players rescue captured villagers in order to recruit them into the group of the Merry Band. It sets up the final round, in which the band will choose the best team of villagers to lead in the rescue of Robin. Storm the castle, fight off the sheriff and his elite forces, rescue Robin Hood so that the land may be merry once again. Hey, yes! <laughs> Forward! <laughs> Huzzah! Am I the only one that's a little concerned for the dog on the cover over there? He caught an arrow. He's an amazing dog. Oh, he caught it here. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. It's not through his head, Ed. You're <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> it's an old comedy skit from the 70s. <laughs> a little bit of a departure for us. We played this game on Tabletopia with mm -hmm. the designer. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it is actively on Kickstarter right now. You can check that out on our YouTube channel the entire playthrough. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a nice opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, he was a lot of fun, too. It was quite the adventure, not just because we had to play it on Tabletopia, which can be <laughs> a bit of chaos. 
I was glad the designer was there to keep Evan in check. He was like putting stuff where it needed to be instead of doing the old Evan move where he just moved stuff all over the board. Yeah, I felt uncomfortable sort of messing with it with the board with the designer <laughs> right there. You know, it's bad form, bad form. You guys, I don't care. But. Yeah, right. I found the art interesting. The art made the characters seem like I was part of a village. I wanted to meet these people. And it's like, <laughs> hey, I care about these characters and I want them in my merry band. They're cute, too, because they all kind of, almost all of them defaulted to being smiling and happy, regardless of the terrible situation they happened to be in at the time. Well, they are part of the merry band. I mean, you can't have uh, Eeyore or Iyore in your merry band, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to have a couple grumpy people for contrast, you know? In this game, I was talking about the B team, a bunch of his merry men that you'd never heard of before in this game. And a couple of them were a little grumpy, but most of them were pretty happy. True. I like that there's so many different characters in this game. It did keep it interesting just learning about the different people. And I like the art style. It's kind of like paper cutout art almost. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I was almost going to say like South Park, but it's actually more refined than that. I was very charmed by the style of art in this game. I think I would have been much more bored had it been a traditional fantasy style. These pieces have a lot of character, which is great because it is all people. Yeah, and, and bold colors, too, so it's nice. Nice presentation. So there is a very serious push-your-luck element to this game, huh? Oh, yeah. What you're doing in the days leading up to the final day, which is the actual rescue of Robin, as I said in the instructions, is you're trying to rescue villagers who have been captured by Nottingham's men who are being held, and you want to recruit them basically into your band so you can use them and their abilities to help for the final challenge. Now, how this is laid out on the board is that there are the guards, there are Nottingham's men, whom you can see, but you can't always see their statistics. You can only see the statistics of the very first soldier in that group. But there may be three cards, there may be seven cards, there may be six cards, but you're only seeing the statistics for the first one. You don't know how the other five or six turn down cards, how hard they are that you're going to need to defeat them, and what statistics exactly you will need to defeat them. So you'll do things, as Ed was alluding to, such as doing some advanced scouting to try to discover what the abilities are or what the numbers are for some of those cards that are turned down. You can face them up, and then you can plan accordingly to have the right person of the merry band go and hopefully defeat that entire group of guards. It was fun watching you guys because I actually sat out and just read the trivia this week. So I was on with you guys, but doing handling the trivia for our watchers. And it was actually a really unique position for me to be in. It was very fun to just watch you guys play the game. I was like one of the audience members. And the most fun part was watching you guys flip those cards and be like, oh, am I going to flip it? Am I going to go for it? Am I going to try and fight him? That was thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> there's two different types of cards that are going to be up against you there's like elite cards which are red backed and then the blue back cards are more like an, a normal one and they all have a range of statistics that are on there so you're kind of playing when you're risking whether you should flip the next card or not you're kind of playing within those parameters like it's going to be somewhere between two and six and when you're fighting the cards you're choosing which stat you're going up against for the whole stack so i might say i'm a witty guy because I collected a lot of merry men that have a high wit stat. So I'm going to try to go up against their wits. And every time I flip a card, I'm like, okay, I have three points of wit left. Am I going to have enough to do the next guy? Or... And of course, for me, I always want to push it one 
more than I should probably. <laughs> That's right. Your number has to be has to be higher or tied with the some amount of cards that you're about to turn over and reveal with those guards. They're how tough they are in either wit or brawn or stealth. Another cool aspect is that each challenge is resolved in a different way. So when you're doing a battle with against these men, it's done in one way. And if you're going a battle of brawn, you're just taking them all down. And then if you're doing a, a battle of stealth, you can pick and choose which one you're, you're going after. So it, it's nice to see that that each type of conflict is resolved in a different way. Ed, you were talking about the counting in this game. Is there lots of tracking that has to be done? On Topotopia, are tracking all our stats because you have your leader and your band of four married men, and you add up all those stats together for each of the four categories. So you're doing a bit of counting here. So you're like, okay, how much, how many, how much wit do I have? How much brawn do I have? Oh, how much did you transferred five brawn over to me? Okay, let me count that in there, and then. Uh, okay, I got five jolly points. Well, I'm going to spend my jolly because jolly is just so awesome. What's going on with the jolly points, Evan? Jolly points are like wild points. You can basically assign them however you want. So if I'm playing little John who's got big brawn and I'm going up a, up against a slew of these guards and I don't think that I'm going to quite make it with even with little John's strength, I can turn my few jolly points into more brawn points, boost up my brawn, and then I know I'm ready for the fight. And what about you, Mike? Did you think the stats were distinct enough? Yeah, I feel like I could have used more ways to differentiate what stat I was using. Like, I didn't feel like stealth was that stealthy or brawn was brawny. Like, I didn't feel like I was using that stat to do what I was doing. Ed, were you concerned about quarterbacking? Yeah, so now anytime there's a co-op game, there's going to be that guy who can say, oh, if you do this, and then if I do that, and then this other guy does the other thing, we'll <laughs> right. definitely win. And that just come from naturally, everybody has their parts, and you can kind of see like, oh, somebody's going to try to puzzle out everything. It's like, I know what I'm doing, and my thing is going to work better if you do this other thing. Yeah, this game almost promotes quarterbacking <laughs> because uh you're when you're picking your your characters for your merry band at the end of each round you kind of do want to weigh heavily on two stats for each person because you get two actions and you're only using one of your stats for each of those actions so if i have all the brawn cards on each turn i'm going to be the guy who does the brawn attack and if ed has all the stealth cards or you know the good majority of strong stealth cards he's going to probably want to do that attack so if you diversify too much, you end up being kind of wishy-washy in all the different categories. Right, but you also don't want to concentrate too much because, no, as you said, there's two stats that you're going to have a, a, an attack on. And if only one person has all the brawn, that, that means that everybody else is going to be weak on it and they're not going to have a, an effective second attack for them. Right. They may need that brawn. Mm -hmm. But you can't. you do pass your brawn on to each player, though, when you're done. So... If I have five brawn and it's not enough to get much work done on my action, I'm just going to not use my brawn and pass it to the next guy. Yeah, that's part of the strategy as well is that Jolly, the stats for Jolly and for brawn can be passed along from player to player during each day. So you might want to arrange it so that the person who needs the most brawn at the end of the day receives whatever unused brawn the other characters didn't use during the fight. And you have a couple other strategic choices to make, like the scout token. You can choose when and where you want to reveal two members of, the, uh, of the, your um, opponents. Uh, I liked the prayer feature for especially Friar Tuck. The prayer tokens allow you to 
move men around. Not like, oh, I'm going to put you in this other pile instead. Or if you use two prayer, they're just removed altogether. Yeah, get rid of that guard. We know he's got a six brawn and a six, you know, he's got high statistics. You pray, pray twice and get rid of him. You can imagine that cinematically. Being, We're really outnumbered here. And Friar Tuck just starts <laughs> Please praying. Please help us. Please let him stumble away to some other group. <laughs> <laughs> okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Rescuing Robin Hood. Evan? Rescuing Robin Hood is a fun co-op card game. Keeps everyone in the action at all times. Nothing wrong with that. Dig it up. Ed? I didn't find it particularly deep, but the art brings you into the village. And you'll want to risk it all to save this jolly band. So I'll dig it up to check out this on Kickstarter. Mike? I love the excitement of knowing my odds and then defying them. And Rescuing Robin Hood handed me that on a silver platter. It's worth another play on a casual day, so I'll dig it up. If you have thoughts about Rescuing Robin Hood, let us know. We are on Instagram. Shoot us a DM, and you can see our playthrough on YouTube. Hey, guys. We just wanted to talk about new patrons. We've been getting some lately, and we just wanted to say thank you so much. Supporting this show is huge for us and our growth. It allows us to continue doing the show, for one thing, and... It also gives us the opportunity to do one of the most fun things we do with Which Game First, which is the bonus points podcast for patrons only. Yeah. Today's bonus points was so much fun. We <laughs> talked about uh, what what game would we bring with us if we were stranded on a desert island. Yeah, and we ended <laughs> up just getting caught up on the logistics of being <laughs> on a desert island. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's worth discussing though, right? I mean, come on, seriously. <laughs> oh, for us. I mean, how could we help it? I know. But that's what bonus points is all about. We take any sort of game related topic or tangent and we run with it and have fun with it. Uh, emphasis on the tangent. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. It is a much looser show for our patrons only. It's kind of a behind the scenes look at who we are and why we do what we do. And if you want to become a patron and a supporter of the show and get all of our bonus points episodes right to your podcast feed, just go to our website and become a supporter today. What else is going on, Evan? On Thursday nights, every Thursday night, we are playing live on our Twitch channel. We like to call it Twitch Game First. Catch us on Thursday night, 7 o'clock Eastern, on our Twitch channel. We are Witch Game First there. And we're going to play a game that we are going to eventually review, but you get to watch us actually play it and comment on it. And we interact with you, the audience. Plus, Celeste does an awesome trivia game every Thursday as part of it. So it's a game Wrapped in a game. <laughs> game Inception. Yeah, the trivia is for our watchers. It's for you guys. And if you don't get a chance to be there exactly when we're doing it, which we understand you have busy lives out there, you can catch our games on YouTube uh, after they come down from uh, Twitch, which they'll be there on Twitch for a week-ish, and then they'll be on our YouTube. So you can check us out there, and you can also subscribe to us there so you'll know every single time we put a brand new one up. Slap that subscribe bell. Ding! Ding. And not just our playthroughs are there, also our unboxings. Yep, that's true, our hyper mm -hmm. unboxings. And now we're starting to do slow-mo versions <laughs> of the hyper unboxing, which oh. actually is just in real time. <laughs> With commentary. With commentary, running commentary, mostly by me and Evan. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. by me and Ed, too. Tons of running commentary. I uh, I think our PAX Premier one was a lot of fun. 
We've got a new one out now. And you can catch that also on Instagram. And we just started turning the camera on and going buck wild on game day. So you can kind of see a behind the scenes of us playing the games or starting to make our videos for you guys. It's all on our Instagram feed. So check us out there. Definitely subscribe to us. Really helps us grow on Instagram. And we so appreciate you listening. Thank you all. Thanks for stopping by. Let's talk about the board game PAX Pamir, second edition, designed by Cole Whirl, published by Whirligig Games in 2019. Number of players 1 to 5, ages 13 and up, playtime 45 to 120 minutes. Okay, Mike, tell us, what's in the box? The cover of the box for PAX Pamir is simple but elegant. It's a rich purple background with a fancy version of the words Pax Pamir in English, and what I assume is its Arabic counterpart, boldly emblazoned in the center. There's a lot in here, so so hang with me. All right, here we go. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it extra fast. Ready? Inside, we discover a fabric map, a market board, 36 coalition blocks, 50 wooden cylinders, five victory point tracker cylinders with gold markings, 40 punchboard coins. Six ruler tokens, five player boards, five loyalty dials, a favored suit marker that looked a little bit like a minaret tower, 118 cards representing events and the court, 24 Wakan cards, and two turn structure and how to win player aids. And that's what's <laughs> in the box. Well, before we find out if it's a great game or just takes place during the great game, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Pax Pamir, players assume the role of 19th century Afghan leaders attempting to forge a new state after the collapse of the Durrani Empire. The goal is to align with one of the three factions, Britain, Russia, or Afghanistan, in order to yield the best possible political and military outcomes. Pax Pamir is a tableau builder. Players purchase cards from a central market which go into their hand. From their hand, cards are played onto their tableau, which is called a court. Playing cards adds units to the game's map and also grants access to actions designed to disrupt other players and influence the course of the game. To survive, players will organize into coalitions. Throughout the game, the dominance of the different coalitions will be evaluated by the players when a special card, called a dominance check, is resolved. Players loyal to the leading coalition will receive victory points based on their influence in that coalition. After each dominance check and victory points are awarded, the game partially resets, offering players a chance to change their alliances. The game ends when a single player is able to achieve a lead of four or more victory points, or after the fourth and final dominance check is resolved. Pax Pamir! <laughs> <laughs> well, we played this game live. Got to touch all the components. You can see our unboxing, both the hyper unboxing and regular one, on our Instagram page. What did you guys think of all of these components? So glad we played this at the real table. Because you just cannot appreciate this game as well on a computer screen. There's no chance at all. These components are fabulous. Yeah, how else would you know that the board is a carpet? Right, <laughs> fabric. <laughs> yeah. Or that, the, or that the metal coins were actual, you know, metal. Ed got those metal coins as part of the Kickstarter, right, Ed? Mm -hmm. Yes, they're a Kickstarter bonus. And if, uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to want the metal coins. Of course. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
very well done. Representative of real rupees from that era, mm-hmm. which is very cool. All the physical components work together, the quality design, and you can see they all interact with the game theme. I think the most interesting pieces were those heavy ceramic, maybe, pieces that represented the armies and roads. The coalition blocks. Yeah. yeah. I think they might have been resin, but they were like thick and heavy and chunky. Very beautiful, highly detailed, and the art was wow. Very classic style, almost in the style of the 1800s during this great game period, and that was gorgeous. I just loved it all. It really brought me into the setting. I'm a fan of this era anyway. I love historical fiction. George MacDonald Frazier is my favorite author, and he writes in Mm. this period, I would say, if you're if you're interested in it at all i would highly recommend his book called flashman in the great game uh Uh it was a ton of fun a great way to be introduced in a hilarious book (laughs) yeah the flashman books are hilarious pax pamir was okay a little bit thick on symbology right guys uh yeah there's a lot going on in this game cards are full to the brim with actions and symbols when you first play the card there's like a bunch of symbols on the side, but all that stuff is done once you play it. Then the only symbols you need to worry about are the like one or two symbols on the bottom of the card, which are persistent stuff that you need to use during the game. And the rest of the card was filled up with a ton of flavor text. That was an interesting bit. I like cards that have multiple components like that, where you can use them in different ways. And the color text was charming. So it wasn't one of these shoddy fly-by-night game designer wrote it type of color text it was legit novel quality color text and it was of a size that folks of an age could read which was really good i have to say we played a game the same day where the text on the cards was unreadable due to the size of the card and the size of the text so this was these were very well thought out cards and card designs plus all that flavor actually got you into the mood of this game too And because the factions change all the time, it really helped to set the tone of the game because these characters weren't necessarily aligned to a faction. Even though, let's say, one of them was a British officer, he could actually align himself with any of the factions, the Russians, the Afghans. And it was interesting to read the character and think about why his allegiances might change in the moment. However, some of these cards did have allegiances to certain factions, which is another component of the cards that you had to read into, sort of this thin stripe running through the middle of the card, (laughs) and then another even thinner (laughs) stripe at the very bottom of the card with a symbol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these these cards had one, two, three, four, five, like about six or seven different things that that you would glean from the information on this card. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used at different stages in the game, too, because that loyalty part is one of the ways to score, is having people that are loyal to the same faction that you're representing at the moment. So it was important and hidden. <laughs> okay, scoring was the craziest part of this game. The scoring is based on every time a dominant check comes up, you'll have to see if any of the coalitions are currently dominant on the board. If they are, you score based on everybody's allegiance to that faction. If no faction is dominant, then you score based on how many pieces you have on the board in play. 
Yeah, I'm still confused just hearing it. And he's described, he's, he's explained it to me like five times already. <laughs> so that I would urge you, if you're going to play this game, um, to learn the scoring first before you even develop knowledge of the rest of the game. Because yeah. that will inform your choices throughout. I will say the rule book did stress a couple points by saying, please read this again because it's very important. <laughs> yeah, it says games will be won and lost by this rule. <laughs> <laughs> it was very insistent, which I, I appreciated that because, uh, you know, even though I still got pinged by the thing they were talking about later, uh, it was very important to note that that could happen. And the wheel that changes to Russia, Afghan and British for the alliances and how you spin it, it's such an important part of the game. They gave you a wheel for it and mm -hmm. you keep it right by your board. That's the crux of this game. Just trying to keep your head above water in whatever faction is doing best. It's interesting how it's so costly to change allegiances because you lose all the stuff from your last allegiance. But it's still a very viable strategy. So every time the option comes up, you're like, is this the time I switch gears? We didn't do a lot of gear switching. The only person who ever changed alliances in our game was Ed early on to the Brits. Oh, but I think that was strictly due to our learning curve. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I was looking at it like, why, would, why wouldn't everybody just be with the Brits? And I was trying to provide an alternative for everybody by keeping the Russian faction strong so that somebody would see, oh, the, the power is about to shift if I just jump in on the Russian coalition now. I'll be, you know, at the at the edge of the new dominant group that's going to be up there. But nobody bit. Everybody stayed with Britain. <laughs> we all said, yet. I started off with the Afghan faction, and I saw the British were clearly ahead coming into this next dominant check. So I was like, you know what? I had the opportunity to change factions and get in on a pie. Yeah, without too much loss, too. If you switch when you don't ha either have much or early on, it's not as bad a penalty. And plus, if it's that staying with that faction is not going to give you any points, I might as well give up my stuff because it's not giving me points anyway. I love the simplicity of this board. I just the design of this game is elegant. There is so much going on, and yet the board looks so simple. You know, there's only six locations and, yeah, the tribes and the, co what are they called? So coalition blocks. There can either be roads or armies based on whether they're standing or lanes. So it looks really simple, and that's good because it is very complex to use your cards well. The board being simple helps you so much be able to concentrate on your cards and your spies. And yes, there are spies in this game. Did we mention that? Oh, I had an army of spies. I had uh, what is it, five or six spies at one point, but I wasn't really leveraging them because I was trying to build up my empire too much and I didn't have the extra actions to be moving my spies around the board. But if I had been smart about it, I could have probably slowed everybody else down by putting my spies on top of their different agents. And now this is a tableau builder. So that means you shop for cards in a central marketplace and then you put them in front of you in a tableau. And mm -hmm. I like this kind of game. A tableau builder is very interesting to me. I'm often engaged because they do allow for really getting into a story or a theme. So I love that about it. And the shopping was a ton of fun. I agree. The game mechanics are simple. Buy a card, put it out there. The complexity comes in just the way those cards interact with the others. 
So you're putting this out there and you're like, okay, but now what? What's that going to do? Me having five here and me adding an extra tribe in that location. Ooh, do I want to pay taxes to Mikey? He's, he, he's short in money, but maybe I want to have him keep being short in money. I don't know. Games like this are tough on me sometimes because I start to have a loyalty to the first part that I played. And in a game that has such quick shifting alliances, it's really tough for me to give up on it. Um, an example I'll give is Small World, where you start off with the elves or something like that. And at a certain point, they're just not relevant anymore. You can't go forward with them. So you have to switch them out and you just watch them become extinct. All that work you put into them just goes away. And that kind of makes me sad when I'm playing a game like this. Hmm. I think you might be under a misconception as to what Ed needs to do for Ed. <laughs> you have an idea what I'm thinking? <laughs> and my loyalty changes, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you right now, Russia will become very dominant. We are up and coming. Just watch what happens next. One of the things I really appreciate about this game is the designer himself has a design history and dedication page at the end of the book. As you might imagine, as a pack game, you might have played Pack Perforiana, one of Phil Eklund's game. He indeed had that as a history of this game. He worked with Phil Eklund and then decided to design a game based on Pact for the great game. It is so based on that book. And I always find it intriguing just to see how the game design developed and what went into the game. And it's, it's cool to see the designer's thought process that went into the game design. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Pax Pamir. Mike? Pax Pamir gave me the tough personal challenge of being a cold, calculating mercenary trying to make a buck. And despite my distaste for that lifestyle, I thought it was a fun puzzle. So I'll say dig it up. Evan? Pax Pamir is a beautiful-looking game, highly nuanced with a bevy of rules and details. I found it challenging to know when to switch factions and sort of stumbled my way through the first play, but there's a lot going on. Replayability is high. It's worth more attempts. Dig it up. Ed? The gameplay is highly strategic, and this version is masterfully presented. This is my kind of game, and I'm going to dig it up. I think masterful is the right word. The beautiful art and components in this game thoroughly enchanted me and were perfect for the setting and the theme. And then to find out that the mechanics do not disappoint, it is a delight in every way. Dig it up. If you have thoughts about PAX Premier or The Great Game or any part of history, <laughs> let us know. And we are on Instagram and Facebook. Come and talk to us. Subscribe there and YouTube. Thank you so much. Our last game up this week is King Kong. No designer, published by Milton Bradley in 1966. Number of players 2 to 4, ages 5 to 12. Yeah. Playtime, about 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, Mikey, what's in the box? All right, well... On the cover is a knockoff version of Magilla Gorilla or maybe Grape Ape uh, punching a hand-me-down version of Godzilla into unconsciousness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but look at all the stars, like, <laughs> you know it. floating around its head. Uh, inside, you are supposed to find a board and the standard five pawns and a six-sided die pack. But we'll talk about that more soon. 
And that's basically it. That's what's in the box. <laughs> Want to tell them what was in the box when we opened? What was it? actually in the box? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two red wooden cylinders from another game. <laughs> one blue wooden cylinder and a green wooden cylinder from another game, and no six-sided die and the board. That was it. Thank goodness the board. All was right, there. all right, all right. Before we go ape on this review. Evan, <laughs> tell late. us how it's played. Too late, yeah. <laughs> King Kong Game is a cartoon-themed game based on the cartoon of, from the mid-60s. This was a show on TV. <laughs> so not the King Kong Game and not King Kong The Game. <laughs> and just for your awareness, that's what you need to use to find a game on Board Game Geek, King Kong Game. Because you will be looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> Players race around a track on the game board. Starting at the ship and ending at the grass hut. <laughs> the path have goals, right? <laughs> no explanation on why or what. You just start at a ship and end at a grass hut. The end. The path has shortcuts. Ooh, but beware! The shortcuts can lead you astray and send you back to various points on the path, thwarting your goal of getting to that grass hut. But beware again! <laughs> players must roll the exact number to land on the grass hut. Oh. And the player to do so will be deemed King King Kong of the grass hut, perhaps the highest achievement in the history of board games. Thank you. I Okay. All right. <laughs> Maybe it would make sense if I actually watched that cartoon. No, it wouldn't. The cartoon only makes it less make sense. <laughs> it makes the game more painful. <laughs> I was glad to have played it without the context of having seen an episode of the cartoon, but then we just went this morning and actually looked at some bits of the actual cartoon. It would have been worse. Yeah, it did not inform play. So what are they doing on this tropical island? They're looking for King Kong, man. They're getting off the boat to go to the grass hut. Duh. <laughs> the grass hut. It's a very special grass hut. It says finish on it. But why does King Kong even live in any kind of hut? Like, why is that? Is this goal for housing? I don't think that's King Kong's hut. Then why uh, is uh, the hut the goal? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trying to get home? I don't know. Let's ask game designer uncredited. <laughs> <laughs> I try to look for the game on Board Game Geek, you know, King Kong Game. It actually came up with two versions of this game. The one we played in an earlier version from 1963 with a totally different art and a totally different board. But from the same company. Because the cartoon started in 1966, so this game came out to promote the cartoon, apparently. But the earlier one has shades of Eddie Cantor on it. I was just going to say that. Ooh. <laughs> You've got on this board four different emotional states of King Kong. One is like, <laughs> he's like complacent. He's cool. One is he's super rageful and angry. One, he's annoyed. And the other one, he's laughing out loud. I don't remember King Kong ever laughing out loud um, in the movies. Oh, Again, you have to watch the TV show. All three seasons of it. Also, <laughs> why is he happier near the end and angry in the middle? Shouldn't he be angrier as you get closer? Celeste, uh, I'll explain that. Because if you notice on the game board, as he's got his fangs out in that angry face, his eyeballs are shifting to the left. And who's there but the dad smoking the pipe? Obviously, it's a no-smoking island, and he's totally <laughs> pissed at that point. <laughs> oh, See, I was goodness. thinking that he walked through this journey like... 
hopeful in the beginning. So he has a little smile like, oh, this isn't going to be too bad. I can see. Wait, the who's right walking the through the journey? Is it the ape or the people? The ape. I'm saying it's the ape. He's the only one who shows any emotion, really. I so. think it's the people. I thought it would be the family. Yeah. Yeah. The ape isn't getting off the ship and going to the grass hut, is he? It's the people. Listen, if you're trying to find logic here, <laughs> you're on a fool's errand. <laughs> There's no way to piece this together. The board goes girl, ape, man, ape, ape, boy, ape, ape old man. That's the board. <laughs> and then the hut. And then, and then the hut. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, when you have a bunch of white space on a board, you have to fill it with something. And what? The designers had like two hours to decide what to do, apparently. So that's what they yeah, came they up with. They got the licensing to use the faces, and that was it. I mean, do you realize how many games Mr. Uncredited has to come out with every year to keep his job? <laughs> In the 60s, a lot. He earned his $30 that week. That's for sure. <laughs> $30 a week? Wow. So what about the mechanics of this game? I mean, oh, the mechanics. It's, a oh, game. it's a game. Yeah, yeah that's right. It comes with a <laughs> with a D six. Well, uh, actually, the the one we got, they they stole the D six or something. So I had to supply our own D six. Yeah, we had this really fancy dice tower with you know shiny wooden dice tower and Evans D six rolling it through this beautiful dice tower next to this horrendous like monotone ugly game <laughs> it did seem sacrilege to use the dice tower for this game all right so mechanics ed was talking right. mechanics go for it ed so um i guess one of the, uh, the primary rules in the game <laughs> is that when you're on a yellow space you must declare whether you're going to take the shortcut through the red path or Take the safe road through the blue path. And the safe road's longer. The shortcut. Oh, yeah. yeah. Much longer. Longer. But you don't have any of those angry triangles that send you back. Aha. Vicious <laughs> triangles. Oh. The shortcut <laughs> is booby-trapped with triangles. So there's a choice in the game. Do you take the safe path or do you take the shortcut? And then you roll the die to see what happens. Yeah, and that's it. That is the only choice in the game. That is your choice. The only mechanics in the game. There's no color text. There's nothing remotely interesting to talk about or look at. <laughs> it is blue dots, yellow dots, red triangles, some ape faces, and the four <laughs> characters from the cartoon. Congratulations. You've just had more fun with it than we did. Yeah. <laughs> Even though this game was a, a travesty, there was one interesting mathematical problem that that caught my eye here is the difference between taking the shortcut or taking the safe path. And I am of the impression after looking at this game that taking the shortcut is better. Although the results that I had every time with taking the shortcut landed me on the start space when, and when Celeste ended on the finish space. We always should risk it. <laughs> Well, that may not be true. Yeah, why not? This, no, there's a math. There is uh -oh. a math. One, two, three, four. Ah, see, that's ah, why. That's why. Ah, that's we're oh, barely that's back why. to start. What the hell? He'll catch okay, up if we cut, play it safe, go. I guarantee it. One, oh, two, don't, don't count until you roll. Three, one. one. Cheater. This isn't the great pumpkin patch, Celeste. <laughs> yeah, this go. is King Kong. At least wait till you roll. At least wait till you roll. I agree with you, Mike, that the shortcut is always the better choice, except 
The last one. The last shortcut. Because the last shortcut has three triangles, which puts your odds above 50-50 almost at all points. Yeah, right. 60% chance you're going to go backwards. The two choices I'm presenting in my uh, math is always take the safe choice or always take the risk choice. And I would say the risk choice overall is better. That's my... So, Evan, you always took the safe road, right? I did. I was the I was the uh, test subject. I was the placebo, effectively, <laughs> so that we could really see uh, which way is more effective: avoid all the shortcuts or take the shortcuts. Oh, we better play a few more times then. You don't think our sample size was large enough to, de- uh, to <laughs> right. confirm the results of the study? Yeah. The replayability of this game is <laughs> five to twelve. <laughs> they knew to cut off the age because anybody else would be bored out of their mind. Oh man. <laughs> Ages five to six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I was> <laughs> no. five, five to 12. Five to five minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, they got the game time down, though. That it, that was a 15-minute game. Mm-hmm. We got this done in about 13 minutes, this game. Yeah, see how so fast it is So that was spot no on. Choices. Congratulations. So, Celeste. Yes. Um, you have children in that age range. Oh, yes. Um, what do you think that, uh, their impression of this game would be? <laughs> yeah, Celeste. There's just no way a nine-year-old could be even remotely interested in this after one play. One play. How much did you pay for this game? Well, I, I, I have to admit this. Yeah. <laughs> on, on the show? Yeah, sorry, dude. All right. So now let's say Evan got it at the normal amount of $1.99 at a, oh, at a thrift you. store. Thank you. Okay, we'll, Save me the embarrassment. We'll go with that. Now, it costs you $2 to get 15 minutes of entertainment. You definitely would have been better off going to a movie or doing just about anything else, buying a pack of gum. Uh, to Evan's point, I want to point out one little thing. The 63 edition of the King Kong game has a note in it. That says, hard to Help find and sought after by collectors. What? Oh. Uh-huh. And that only note went in there once the 66 game came out, which was total rubbish. Maybe people <laughs> yearn for the 63 version. Okay, explorers. It's time to <laughs> dig up or bury King Kong game. Ed? This is a race game. It has a choice. But the best choice is to just bury this game. (laughs) Mike? King Kong was a boring race to nowhere that checked all the boxes on my hate list. (laughs) Negative movement, have to roll the exact number to win. Uh, You know, the list goes on, but I'm just going to cut it short and say bury this fossil. Evan? The only bad thing is that I can only introduce this game to you once. <laughs> King Kong game is kind of like Candyland with a different skin and a die instead of cards. There's really nothing to admire about this, quote, game. It is more of a 10-minute time burn for six-year-olds on a rainy Saturday, at best. <laughs> Bury it. I mean, at least in Candyland, there's tantalizing candy art. This game has nothing. Both the graphics and the art are terrible. There's nothing to do in this game, bury it. <laughs> okay. I overpaid for this game, I admit it, but I tell you what, this review, that was worth it so much, so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing from you. 
Subscribe on Instagram. Send us a direct message there. We are always there. We are on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to support the show and get exclusive access to our patron-only weekly podcast, Bonus Points. Bonus Points. Bonus Points. Then go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, please leave us a like or a review on any podcatcher. It hugely helps us continue. Happy gaming, explorers. Hey, Ed, let's play King Kong game. Um, am I got this right? King Kong slapped a volcano? <laughs> <laughs> He's King Kong, man. He can do whatever he wants. He's the king.